pretty much from the first moment I started talking about doing this podcast, people told me about end-of-life doulas, also known as death doulas. This is a relatively new term, one that emerged in the last few years. Borrowing the name and the concept from birth doulas, end-of-life doulas provide guidance and support in many different ways to help people exit this world, a parallel to the way birth doulas provide guidance and support to help people enter this world. The field emerged in response to the holes that modern Western society has in our approach to dying. Exactly what an end-of-life doula does can vary from one person to another based on the skills of the doula and what's needed by the dying person and the people around them. For some death doulas, the work is a calling more than a profession, although there are people who are doing this work full-time. To learn about all of this, I contacted the National End-of-Life Doula Alliance, or NIDA. I had a lively and wide-ranging conversation with one of their board members, Karen Reppin. She shared how she went from being death-phobic to becoming an end-of-life doula. Now she's on the board of NIDA and an advocate for death positivity in many ways. Stick around. I think you're really going to get a lot out of this conversation. Hello and welcome to Dying Kindness, the podcast for people who are going to die someday. I'm Sienna Stewart, and I'm going to die someday. You will too. So let's all learn what we need to do and make some key decisions before we die in order to be kinder to those we'll leave behind. I believe that we should write these decisions down and collect them into one place, what I call a death binder. You can get a template for your own death binder and more at my website, dyingkindness.com. On behalf of the people who love you, I thank you for taking care of them by thinking ahead. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Dying Kindness podcast. I am here with Karen Reppin, and I am very, very much looking forward to this conversation. Karen, you have been part of the different aspects of caring for people in the process of coming to terms with death and just looking at it uh, much more straight ahead in so many different ways. And I wonder if you could give us a little bit of your background coming in and uh, talk to us about what you're doing now. Well, I always start out by just telling people that 20 years ago, I was probably the most death phobic person on the planet. Whenever a friend of mine would get sick or somebody would get old and get close to the end of their life, I was out of there. Mm. It just made me really anxious. But I lost a job that I loved, really didn't know what I was going to do next. And through this really, really crazy stroke of fate, ended up being the PR and communications director at a nonprofit regional hospice, a large hospice that had a an inpatient facility as well as community service out in people's homes and facilities and things like that. So that was the beginning. Well, let me pause you there for just a moment, because that's a big leap, you know, to go from being so afraid of death to, I saw that you have a background as a writer, which is, I guess, how you got into this being a PR and communications director. But what were you even thinking when somebody said, oh, hey, you should apply for this? Or 
you know, that <laughs> this is, we're offering you the job. Like, what was going through your mind? Well, it, it, it was a process. To really be honest, I was hating myself for the way that I was so phobic about end-of-life concerns and so ignorant that I was seeking to change that. I was making a conscious decision to walk toward it rather than away, even though I was terrified. And coincidentally, at that time, my dad was dying. He died one month after I started my position there. And I was not at all prepared for that. But what evolved from that experience, you know, the support I got from my coworkers and from learning what I was supposed to do to, ta to talk to people like me. I mean, it was my job to educate people just like me about end-of-life issues. There, there definitely is something extremely magic about having coworkers who are willing to talk with you about something that so much of the world avoids talking about, especially if you're having a hard time. You know, I was also dealing with caring for somebody who was dying when I was working in an AIDS organization in the 1990s. And it was incredible to not try to pretend that somehow all of the world that we're dealing with while somebody is dying is separate from our lives and ourselves while we're at work. And to have people around who are actually like looking at that and being there with you on that. So I just, I'm, I'm so glad for you that you were able to find that. And it took some bravery to choose to walk towards this. And it sounds like it was also a good source of comfort for you. Yeah, I was terrified. I mean, I remember looking out my office window on maybe the second or third day and and saw them wheeling a, someone who had died out to the uh, the van from the funeral home. And all of the people who died in the facility were taken out the front door. I mean, it was very much normalized. Nobody was hidden away. This whole thing was let's be with this. This is a normal thing that we all do. It's the only guarantee we, sh you know, it, it, that we all share um, after being born. But I, I still remember going, oh my, <laughs> what have I gotten myself into? And then being so terrified about what was going on in my own family. Uh, yet, you know, I was being oriented to what I was supposed to be doing in this job. And so all of the, the whole hospice philosophy was being taught to me about the holistic approach and the support that the team provides, not only to those who are dying, but to family members and friends. And that includes emotional and spiritual and social support, as well as the medical aspects. And I'm just kind of going, okay, I'm here. I was like a sponge, just a very dry sponge getting, soaking it all in. Karen stayed on as the hospice PR director for three years. After a while, she felt the need to go deeper and wanted to do hands-on work with the dying. She changed jobs so she could start volunteering. It was the first time she'd ever had to care for another person's body. Not ever having kids, I did not necessarily know how to be comfortable doing some of the personal cares that I was able to do with people. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if we want to get into this, but, you know, 
feeding people, dressing people, bathing people, wiping butts. I wasn't good at that. Mm -hmm. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to learn how to do this. And that just opened a whole new, another new world where I wasn't intimidated by being with people who were frail or in pain or smelled bad or couldn't talk anymore were, you know, I mean, just the, the gamut of the, the huge diversity of patients that I dealt with and family members and the things that they needed and the things that they felt very uncomfortable about. I, I was able to just be there and listen. And, you know, I, I just kept trying to learn as much as I could. This path led her to meditation, and eventually she challenged herself to dive deep in contemplative work. My biggest emphasis in all of my work is I think we all need to learn about our own personal core belief around end of life, around grief, around illness, aging, and see where they came from, see, see where those mm -hmm. beliefs came from, and. Uh, wonder about whether they're serving us and others. And if not, what can we do about it? Mm -hmm. And uh, that just, I, I don't know, I just found some new like-minded people and, and we started experimenting with educating, creating workshops and classes and presentations that we took out into the community way, way upstream. I mean, people who weren't necessarily sick and weren't necessarily looking death in, in, in the face. I'm mm -hmm. also involved in several grassroots movements as well as the, I'm on the board and have been for, this is, I'm completing my third year on the board of the National End of Life Doula Alliance. That is a, an incredible journey, you know, such a 180 from where you were resistant and avoiding even dealing with people who are close to you who are getting sick or dying to then making it your job and your volunteering plus helping with grassroots organizations all focused on helping people with their end of life and now you're also a board member with more volunteering so that's just that's just incredible it sounds like you got something or some understanding about death through thinking about it and you've definitely experienced some transformation by looking it directly in the face. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that a fair characterization? Well, you've probably heard the term, uh, the phrase, death feeds life. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe that on so many levels, that if we knew death uh, more intimately, if we contemplate our impermanence and acknowledge that we are temporarily able-bodied, those of us who came into the world able-bodied. I know not everyone is. Uh, however, you know, none of us go out able-bodied. Even if it's for a split second, we aren't able-bodied. Mm -hmm. So acknowledging that and becoming aware of the fact that that we'll never get out alive it makes living so much better or just more mindful and i'm not saying that every day is a joy to be alive but i certainly have so much more gratitude and i have so much gratitude being around death is an incredible privilege 
We talked for a while about the history of death care and how it shifted away from the home and into hospitals with the rise of modern medicine. On the plus side, we are living longer and expect to be fairly healthy for most of our lives. On the other hand, we have become distanced from death and no longer know how to talk about it. This process of shifting death and dying into medical settings also created holes in what support and information was available to families. Hospice emerged as a volunteer effort to fill these gaps. I'm not going to go into all of what hospice entails. If you want to know more about that, check out episode 5. In that conversation with a former hospice nurse, I go deep into how awesome hospice can be and how to use it well. Just go to dyingkindness.com slash the number 5. Back to Karen. She really admires the people who started hospice and sees its incredible value. But she also pointed out that over time it's changed and new limitations have emerged. You know, hospice began and it really was a, a grassroots volunteer-led movement. And yet in order for it to grow and thrive and people who it was sort of like, well, how do we do how do we reach more people? And it became like so many things here sort of commodified and put into the system of the the capitalistic model and in order to get reimbursement for people who were who were needed really needed but couldn't just donate their entire life to serving people at the end of life they needed to be paid there needed to be a revenue stream and so i think it was why well, i can't even remember when the medicare benefit emerged. But that was a game changer because, of course, then there needed to be accountability and much more regulations and licensure. And so everyone on the team had to have certain credentials and a real purpose. And in order to make sure that they didn't overspend from what they were being reimbursed, they had to start limiting time spent with people. And mm -hmm. it's a difficult dilemma. Hospice can't necessarily do everything it wants to do. And now it's becoming clear that the social workers and the chaplains and the grief counselors and the volunteer coordinators and the nurses and the doctors can't necessarily do everything. And that patients and families still have additional need for support that their friends and neighbors and families have forgotten. And mm. so in steps people like those who started hospice, who say, you know what? And, and this, is, this is, you know, all kinds of people. I mean, end of life, in steps end of life, the end of life doula or the death awareness educator or the death doula. You know, doula is a word that um, has been sort of pirated from the birth doula movement. Um, it, it means a person of service. And that's been the parlance that's used, but a lot of people use guide. They maybe just support person, supporter, whatever. But it's just people who are drawn to providing the non-medical support to people who are struggling. You know, mm -hmm. dying asks a lot of, of people, especially if they aren't 
aware of what that means. And in our society, because people are so afraid of death, they wait until the very last minute to even acknowledge that this is a possibility. You know, it's no one's fault, but because our culture doesn't educate people about end of life, something I believe kids should learn about from day one. I mean, there should be end of life 101 in elementary school because kids experience this stuff and they, and most of the time people around them don't have a clue about how to support them. All of these factors have led into the, the fact that we are illiterate when it comes to dying and grieving and preparing and practicing mm-hmm. things related to end of life. So mm-hmm. there are people now who have suffered through that ignorance and the, suffered the consequences, myself included. You know, what I would do now versus what I did then with my grandparents, with my dad, with friends. Oh, you know, 180 degree difference. So talk to me about where it is that being the end of life doula is doing things that is not included in hospice or is, you know, like what are, what is the difference there? Because I, I see them both as coming in to help different aspects of somebody dying, but it sounds like perhaps the death doula is going, can, can maybe be in a wider scope in many ways, especially now that the hospice system is more regulated and is based on like, you know, qualifications and reimbursement and all of that. You know, would hospice be covering this if it hadn't gone that direction of regulation? Or is this something that is now emerging because those other things were never getting covered? The need for an interest in having additional support at the end of life for people to die well at home just continues to grow because of all these factors that we've discussed before. And so there are people who whether they call it a curse or a gift of being with a loved one who dies, very often it resonates with them to the point where they say, hey, this is really meaningful. This wasn't all horrible. In fact, there were gifts that were presented here that I never could have imagined. And so Mm. they say, I would like to maybe illuminate that. That's sort of my case. It's like, I want to illuminate this to people that this isn't all horrible stuff. This is not all mayhem. There are amazing uh, positive things that come out of being around a deathbed. And I could tell you some just amazing stories, but we don't have time for them. But it's just, Mm -hmm. let's just say it can be very transformative. And so, you know, there are people who recognize this, and there are people in hospice that see it all the time. I mean, they know. If they have the time to educate families, to be there when families are melting down, if they are, or if they're just confused about how to do the next right thing, um, if they have the time to do all that stuff, it's, it's amazingly rewarding for everyone. So there's this interest that's growing and growing because there's such a need. So basically, there's lots of different ways that people are drawn to the work. And there are many ways that they want to provide the work. I mean, there are retired clinicians. There are people who sat with grandma when she died. 
There are others who are just curious. And this diversity is wonderful because not everybody needs the same thing. You know, people die mm -hmm. differently. And so the role of end-of-life doula is very loosely defined as non-medical support provider. And that means that there are things like providing practical uh, support, like coming in and, I mean, you can be called an end-of-life doula if you, your specialty may be gardening or babysitting or grocery shopping. I mean, that seems like that's one end of the spectrum. But there's also serving as a liaison between the, the person who's dying and family and, you know, being a patient advocate, working with hospice, working with other providers, maybe communicating with friends and neighbors and, and keeping people posted on what's going on or what the person and the family need, mm -hmm. coordinating services, problem solving with logistical concerns. I mean, you know, who's going to take the dog to the vet? Advanced care planning, even though in a lot of cases, advanced care planning, um, well, ideally it's done way upstream. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are people who get diagnosed and say, I don't know what treatments I want. And I, you know, I certainly haven't really considered if I have someone to speak for me. So they need to get a POA for healthcare in, in place. Because eventually people become less and less able to communicate for themselves as they're dying. And there are decisions to be made before that last breath. And so it's good to have advanced directives in place. We mentioned earlier life review and legacy work, you know, talking about who are you? You know, what do you want people to remember? What do you remember? Mm -hmm. What do you, what was, what was meaningful to you in your life? End-of-life doulas help plan funerals and memorial services. They, they don't take the place of funeral directors or whatever, but they can talk to people about, how do you want to do this? Mm -hmm. Do you want to have a party before you get too sick to not be able to appreciate it? Do you want to have a ceremony of life a year after you die? Do you want, how do you want your body dealt with? I mean, all of those things, helping the family sort of go through this. A lot of it is educating, guiding, coaching when things get rough. On the other hand, I think the most important thing is bearing witness and holding space. You know, it's like um, hmm. really just being a companion. A lot of times it's providing respite. If, you know, a family member is exhausted, you can go in, sit with people, make sure that there's not, you know, nobody's falling, somebody they need to be fed or whatever, you can help with that. Facilitating conversations with loved ones. There are some people who are really good at that. And there's a lot of people who are really so totally unprepared to talk to somebody who's dying. Their own grief gets in the way or they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or they think they're going to put their foot in their mouth and they say <laughs> the wrong thing. And so, you know, but at the same time, they have a relationship they, they, they don't want to run away from. So often, a doula might just be there to help model. It's okay. You know, just mm -hmm. have your conversation. And, I mean, they don't have to be there listening in or anything. But to help 
bring some ease to the situation and help people understand that, yeah, you can, you know, this person probably knows they're dying, so it's okay to acknowledge that you're saying goodbye, you know, rather than, oh, mm-hmm. well, I hope you feel better kind of deal. <laughs> um, right. A lot of doulas help by performing rituals and ceremonies and acting as a celebrant before, during, and after a death. They also help with things like non-medical interventions with pain management, like helping create a beautiful environment, setting up a way that maybe music or poetry. And again, it's just, you know, there are so many different things. And the role of NIDA is to support people who want to work in this role. So what one doula does can be incredibly different from what another doula does. And since there's no license required, it's hard to know what someone is going to bring to the table when they describe themselves as a death doula. Karen has been able to see the full breadth of the spectrum of offerings through her role as a board member for NIDA, the National End-of-Life Doula Alliance. NIDA has developed an assessment, uh, a proficiency assessment process, where a whole bunch of trainers and and people who had been doing this kind of work for a long time said, okay, so what are the fundam what's the fundamental knowledge that people should have when they go into this? Because like I said, these training programs that are that are available, many are similar, but many are very different. I mean there's this whole array of different ways to learn about how to serve others at the end of life. And so taking all of these things and and saying, okay, what do you really need to know here? And let's see if if we can do some standardization without diminishing the benefits of this incredible, wide, diverse array of people who have interest and different capabilities and different expertise. And Mm. it's really quite beautiful. That yeah, it's it's incredible actually. And just to hear that insanely complex, multifaceted description of what could possibly be included that it and it also is very different from one end of life doula to the next. Yeah. You know, it sounds like one will provide legal counsel, another can help you sort through the medical advice that you're getting. Somebody else is going to make sure that your garden and your room feel beautiful at all times. Somebody else will design rituals to help the the process. Another person will help facilitate conversations that need to be happening. Somebody else will say, hey, let's let's talk about your legacy. You know, that's all of those different things. You that know? is exactly and, it in a nutshell. It's incredibly diverse. But the whole point is, I mean, our whole role is to reduce suffering. Yes. You know, it's to help people die well, yes. that they can find some meaning in this. But it's a cultural thing. It's not, you know, it's, it's done one by one. But we really do seek to inspire cultural change. People are still dying. People in general are still dying woefully unfamiliar and unprepared for that in a family or close network setting. 
And professionals aren't the only answer. When I was working in HIV, I was primarily working in HIV prevention. And one of the things that I would talk to folks about is the fact that my goal was to put myself out of a job. You know, the, that is the role of prevention is to get to the point when you are no longer needed. One of the things that has emerged over the medicalization of society and, and, and death and birth and, you know, all of these things at the same time is that there are specialists, you know, for, for medical care and then now for funeral care and for all of this. And so there are people who are making money at this. And now also that has included the hospice system. So there are people who are making money at this and have a business of, you know, making sure that people still need them. When I hear things like the death advocacy movement or the death movement or, you know, all of this stuff like that. Now my podcast is part of this whole world of creating awareness and teaching you how to take care of your own. And the goal of reminding people that in the not so, you know, distant past that we actually did live in families that took care of their own and children were not shielded from this so that by the time that their parents were dying, they were well aware of what to do, et cetera. You know, I wonder how you see this movement of the end-of-life doula sort of intersecting with that, you know, the the divergence of the I need to create a specialty world that is going to be my job versus the we're going to do advocacy to the point that we're no longer needed. You know, it seems like the the world of the end-of-life doula, as you're describing it, falls somewhere in between where there are some people who are choosing to make it a job other people who are taking this philosophy um, and their training and integrating it into their existing jobs, or they're just volunteering mm -hmm. to try to help mm -hmm. other people out. You know, as I sort of lay out that picture, like how do you think that movement is going and sort of where does Nita fall into that or just in general, like your own thoughts on sort of the, the direction that this particular community, which is still emerging, mm -hmm. I gather that. Very much so. And it's still in the process of defining itself. How is that conversation happening? Well, it is a conversation, and it's a big one. And I think it's going to be a long road. And my question all the time is, okay, how can Nita be a big tent for everybody when there are so many diverse approaches? And there are not only diverse approaches and so many multiple facets of the kind of support that people need, we are dealing with not just a dominant culture. There are people who die, want to die very differently from their neighbor, or, you know, they have a completely different sensibility about end of life. And this, you know, this then speaks to, you know, just multicultural aspects of living and dying that need to be acknowledged and respected and honored and understood and, and valued. It, it's being sensitive to the actual issues at hand. I think Nita's role is to keep a, a sense of what those issues and opportunities are. What is the big picture? And how can we support all of these different aspects? Do we help people learn how to really do a lot of advanced care planning or do we do I mean or or some of these other things do we make sure that there's there's groups that can network with each other and learn from each other 
do we keep an eye on what's going on in the world of hospice, in the world of long-term care, in the world of modern medicine and palliative care? Do we go into employment, human resources offices and businesses and start talking to them about what do they do when they have people working who are sick or working in our caregiving at the same time that they're trying to hold down a job? Mm -hmm. Can we provide some resources for them? Can we make sure that we have uh, information for people so that they know how to pick a doula if they need support? What to ask the people that may be available to them? Because it isn't everyone, as we said, there isn't one size fits all. And so how do people who don't know what they need ask for, you know, identify what they need? This is what I, I see our role being is, is to really dig deep and see where the need is and, and how the culture needs to sort of evolve. And NIDA needs to just pay attention and respond to what is emerging and, and let it be a landing zone for these, these things to be grappled with. And, and we're trying to come up with, with other tools, you know, that informational tools that, that don't infringe on what the trainers are doing. We are not a training program. We want to support trainers. Right. And we are not going to endorse any one trainer or training program. What we're going to do is try to educate people so that they can decide for themselves what training might be right for them or whether any training is right for them. Mm. We're also going to try to help trainers understand what things they need to consider when putting together programs that, you know, have a huge impact. Being a certified end-of-life doula does not mean that you're certified in any way like it's not licensed it's not regulated there's no governing board that says you have now accomplished x y and z right it's a certification that you have completed someone's training right. and as i said those trainings are very different highly variable one to another <laughs> yeah so you know those are the things that we're doing mm -hmm. Um, one of the focuses for this podcast is to get people to make key decisions well in advance of when they need it and to do things like the advanced care directive, to think through the, the physical stuff that you have, to think through who could possibly be a good advocate for you in those situations where you have somebody, you know, they're listening to this podcast and I hope that they want to make their, their key decisions in advance. Is that something that you can call a doula in for to help with? Or actually, I was also talking with somebody who is in a situation of trying to get their parents who are aging and who are, the, you know, somebody who really should be thinking about this and really has been avoiding it. Is that something that falls into this universe of end-of-life doula? Absolutely. Absolutely. Not every not every person who calls themselves an end of life doula is going to offer that as one of their services, but many will. You know, a doula would likely know of different resources, and if they don't, they would likely say, "I'll find out." You know, that's that's one of the things. It's like I'm at your service. I may not have 
any of the answers that you have questions for right now. Mm -hmm. But my job is to help you not have to do all of that work yourself. And so I'm happy to go out there and do that. And obviously, the next time somebody asks that question, I'm going to have the answers. I mean, I have people that, that have called me and said, hey, I can't afford to do a big funeral. I want to do a direct cremation, but I don't know where to start. And I went out and I researched the area uh, providers. I put together a sheet that compared and contrasted services and prices and all that stuff. Now that's in what a lot of people call their doula bag. You know, (laughs) it's like, all we really need to do is say, you didn't know this was there, but I'm going to show you that it's there. And that's all I need to do because you're going to be able to do it. If you want me to hold your hand while you do it, I'm there for that too. Mm -hmm. Doing a conversation about this rather than just answering the questions on a piece of paper is very helpful. So I've always said having discussions about your end of life planning is 400% more important than the words you put on that piece of paper. It's the conversations you have with your family. So any doula can do that. They can go in and say, bring your family. Well, my family doesn't want to talk about this. Okay, well, maybe we can make a game of it. You know, maybe we'll do a little bit of what are your core beliefs around death that you don't want to talk about it. In sort of thinking back again to your origin story in in all of this work, if there were somebody out there who is really, really afraid or is dealing with a loved one who is really, really afraid to have conversations about death and dying, you know, what are, what is something that you might say to that person to open up the conversation or to invite them into what has been very transformative for you? And, and I also recognize the power of it. Um, So I wonder what you would say since you started off being on the other side of this coin? Well, I I do think that the thing I would try to do most is to instill a sense that they are not alone and that any fear, apprehension, confusion, sorrow is perfectly understandable given our culture and the dysfunction we have around death, how can we expect people to do otherwise than to be terrified? Mm -hmm. It is how we are taught to look at death, to be afraid of it. We praise strength and youth and good health and beauty and, you know, all of these attributes that, that have nothing to do with ending. Mm. It's all emergence. And so when we look at impermanence and aging and illness and accidents and, and, I mean, things even like ending a job or anything that that we, we aren't prepared for, we don't want. And, you know, we don't want people that we love to not be healthy, to not be feeling good, productive, comfortable. We don't want them to not be around us. We enjoy them. This is proper 
to be afraid and sad. The thing that I want to say is, though, that you don't have to do it alone. And much of the, of the real anxiety-producing stuff and the, the incredible discomfort, which I have suffered. I mean, when I get into super anxious mode, I can't eat. I can't sleep. I am a basket case. And that still happens. At the beginning of COVID, I was a mess, even with all the stuff I know. But didn't mean that I wasn't going to totally freak out. So I would say freaking out is normal. It's proper. It is not sustainable. And it will not serve you or the people that you love well. So consider that there are people and resources that are there to help and to walk alongside and companion you and show you other ways to survive this in a meaningful and often rich and joyous way that doesn't result in super trauma. Hmm. So, that's what I would say. And then I would say, you know, start talking to your friends. Use the D word. I still remember when my dad was dying and I had just started that job at hospice and I was explaining to a friend how my dad was going down. And I was a mess and I didn't know anybody at work yet very well. Mm-hmm. And I called this person and this person said to me, Oh, you mean he's dying? Hmm. <laughs> and it was the first time that anybody had said that. Even the doctors in the ICU who had tried, you know, who were saying, well, when he came in, he had this many, this much chance to pull out of it. And now he's like, but we're still going to do dialysis. We're still going to do this. We're still going to do that. We're going to still try. And I'm sitting here going, this doesn't make any sense to me. And my friend, when he said, you mean he's dying? It was like, ah, somebody Mm -hmm. said it. Now I don't have to hide behind the, how are we going to stop the dying? Let's be with it. And that's, again, it's like, we have to learn how to die. Dying is our birthright. Mm -hmm. It's our birthright. Mm -hmm. And. It's a mystery. That's the other thing. It's such a mystery. We don't know. The, if we can go into it with a little bit of curiosity, and even if the curiosity is, how the heck am I going to survive without this person? This is not, oh, he's dead, been dead for a month. He, she, let's get over it. Or so-and-so has been dead for a year. Let's get over it. Mm-mm. It's our job to not get over it. It's our job to remember people and to know what dying asks of us and to be able to step in and be with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's our birthright and we need to know how to do it and to be able to look at it. Yeah. Well, thank you so very much. Well, thank you so very much for what you're doing. Hope that we continue to have opportunities to speak with each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that we definitely should. We, we have stories we, we need to share. Oh, the stories. Yeah. The, some of the stories. I, I keep thinking, oh, I don't want to forget that one. 
and I haven't written them down. <laughs> anyway. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Many thanks to Karen Reppin and to Nita for their ongoing incredible work. I encourage you all to access end-of-life doulas for help with completing your death binder. You don't need to be actively dying to benefit from their wisdom. The theme music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Everything else was done by me. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help, please share it with a friend. You can also go to dyingkindness.com to donate or to share your thoughts with me. I'm Sienna Stewart, and I'm going to die someday, but hopefully not before I get in more practice meditating on the subject. Today's death reading is from Advice for Future Corpses and Those Who Love Them by Sally Tisdale. The poet Marie Howe imagines the moment of death not as an ending, the halting of something, but as a point of completion, a totaling of a life, the eternal memory of the tired satisfaction at the end of a good day, a satisfaction never before known. Quote, at last, someone has knotted the lace of your shoe so it won't ever come undone. End quote. I am not who I was 50 years ago, or 10 years ago, or last year, or yesterday. I am not the person who wrote this sentence. Which of me will die? This moment in which everything, everything, everything changes at once is one of great mystery, great power, like no other moment in all of time. <laughs>